relationship a lot of Christians uh, have with God. Today we are going to look uh, at some other ways that we keep God in a box as we continue our summer series, The Laws of Love. We're taking a fresh look at the Ten Commandments. Um, hopefully you were here last week or you heard the podcast. We had a good, had a good time uh, starting them out. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 20 to kind of get ahead a little bit. See, 3,500 years ago, God made this love covenant with his people, a love covenant. He came down from, uh, he gave these Ten Commandments to Moses as proof of his love and commitment to his people. And he's been, he's teaching these people of his, these guys have lived as slaves for over 400 years, and he's teaching them how to be human again. But see, the Ten Commandments are also a picture of how we can then translate that love that he has for us, that we can reflect that love back to him in ways that we can translate that love and reflect that love back to other people also. See, about a thousand years after this, Jesus comes along the scene. He says the two greatest commandments are what? Loving God with everything you got and loving your neighbor with everything you got, just like yourself, right? And so, and so what the Ten Commandments are are really just kind of these two commandments fleshed out. It's, 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 it's more of a uh, deconstruction of these, these two commandments that Jesus gave us. Because see, if God had come down the mountain and told the Israelites after being 400, 400 slaves for 400 years and said, okay, guys, here's your two commandments, love me and love each other, they wouldn't have known what that looks like, Right? They would be like, uh, we, we've been slaves for 400 years. We don't know what loving God looks like. And so he had to spell it out. He had to give them this beautiful picture. And he put it in terms that they would understand. He showed them how his love for them is so passionate. It's almost, it's almost like a marriage, right? We talked about that last week. This passionate love commitment that he has for his people. So last week, we talked about the first commandment we talked about, which is you shall have no other gods, have no other lovers, right? I'm going to put a ring on your finger, God says, and you can't have other lovers if this is going to work. And so today we're going to jump right into commandment number two without messing around too much because we've got a lot to talk about here and it's really, really cool. Let's start in Exodus chapter 20, verses four. He says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. And in verse five, he says, Excuse me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is unusual language to, for us to read today. You know, we, we don't think all the time of God being a jealous God. This word in the Hebrew, by the way, jealous, it literally means to have the face red. So you could just imagine the jealousy. You know, if, if, if you saw your spouse, someone's like hitting on your spouse or something like that, you know, your face gets all red. I'd be like, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd come out ready to fight. It would, it would be very intimidating, I know, because you see these huge guns that I have. Um, it's probably a surprise. I, I don't even work out to get this. Uh, it just, yeah, comes naturally. Um, uh, body by breakfast taco, right? Um, Fortunately, I've never had to do that, but, you know, hopefully won't have, ever have to do that. But, but God says, I don't want you to substitute any kind of monument or any kind of statue that represents, that represents me instead of the real me. I want you to have the real me. So in verse 5, notice how it finishes up. It says, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This is strong language. This is kind of uncomfortably strong language here. When he says here, this is an interesting point, a little side note. Uh, when he says visiting the iniquity of the fathers here, in some of your translations, it might even say uh, punishing the children or punishes the children. The Hebrew phrase here is very interesting. It's paket avon. 
And this phrase literally means to observe the effects of sin. To observe the effects of sin. Um, the, iniquity is the effects of sin. And so he's saying here to visiting the effects of sin, to, vi- to observe these things. Which really makes sense because when you think about it, the sins of, of, our, of our ancestors clearly have lasting repercussions, don't they? For generations to come. The sins of our American ancestors, th- th- horrible things like slavery, we are still paying the price of these horrible sins today. The effects of these sins are lasting. And so it doesn't mean necessarily that God punishes children and grandchildren with some kind of generational curse. In fact, the Bible plainly states in several places, uh, we don't have time to go into them all, but that people are held accountable for their own sins. They're held up on account, not those of their parents. Maybe you can uh, talk a little bit more about this in your, your home groups this week. But if you, you're taking notes, you can just jot down Ezekiel 18.20. talks about this, Deuteronomy 24.16. So there isn't necessarily a generational curse from sin, but there is definitely generational consequences of sin. And that is the point here. But God's hatred of idols comes through loud and clear, doesn't it? There's no mistaking his hatred for the idols. Now, this is the part in the sermon, usually... When the preacher says something like, so what are the idols in your life? Right? But I don't want to go there today. Because, number one, we went there last week. Uh, And God went there in the first commandment. The way that we often use the word idol. I think actually the way we use the word idol is often a little bit mistaken. So we're not going to go exactly there. See, the first commandment said what? You shall have no other gods no other lovers, don't put anything, you know, no, no love for anything except for me. But the second commandment is distinct. It's not just a restatement of the first commandment. It's distinct because it's, it's not about having other gods. It's about making idols. So what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is idols, idols is all about putting God, the one true God, in a box. That's what idolatry is. See, loving something more than God isn't necessarily idolatry. God would consider that spiritual adultery, loving something, having other lovers, spiritual adultery. Idolatry is trying to make God small. It's trying to turn him into something he isn't. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at God is saying, look, don't try to make me manageable, all right? Don't, try to, don't, don't turn me into a location. Don't compartmentalize me. I, I'm not a thing that you can be in the presence of and then out of the presence of. I'm here. I'm, I, you are in my presence, right? I am bigger than that is what God is telling us. Now, this was really difficult for the Israelites to grasp, right? Because everybody back then had idols. Every religion had their idols. And especially for 400 years, they've been in Egypt. And, you know, if you've ever watched Discovery Channel, you know about all of Egypt's, you know, idols and their temples and this sort of thing. And idols were important back then because it enabled people to touch and understand and sort of wrap their mind around and manage their God. See, that's important. That same desire is, is in all of us. We really have that desire. We want to shrink God down into something manageable. And I understand, because I, I like to understand things. I'm not all the time comfortable. I, I didn't grow up comfortable with mystery and, you know, ambiguity or something like that. That is something that God had to do to me to make me finally acknowledge and give up and say, okay, you're bigger than me. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to understand every little thing, right? So that, but that's something inside us. We say to God, we say, well, God, you're Sunday. 
You're here this morning. Yeah, but the rest of the week, it's kind of mine. But, but your Sunday, um, your religion. I can come and do religion, on, and then Monday I can go, and I can kind of leave you out of it. Because I, I did my little worship and made my little sacrifice to the idol, the Sunday idol, right? The need for idols, this is, it would be funny if it weren't so sad, the need for idols in the Israelites was so ingrained in them after 400 years, so ingrained. Right after they're liberated from Egypt, you, and many of you know the story, some of you might not, they're liberated from Egypt after 400 years. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, and he, he's going up to get the Ten Commandments while they're waiting for him. Like, like five minutes go by, Moses is getting the commandments. The first two commandments are, have no other gods and have no idols. What are they doing? They're making idols. They're like melting all the jewelry they have to make this golden calf, right? They, it's like, it's so in their, their, their DNA, they can't hardly stand it. They did exactly that. And Moses comes down from the mountain, do-do-do-do-do, with these Ten Commandments, right? And what does he see? This big golden calf. Right, and he gets really angry, and he throws them down, and they break, which is awkward because God just made those, right? <laughs> you can imagine him having to like go back up the mountain. God's like, "Weren't you just here?" And he's like, "Well, I was really angry. You don't know what they were doing." <laughs> Sorry about that. Lost my temper a little. Anyway, so it, it was so ingrained, and and so this is this is huge for us today. See, God says, "Don't you dare think of me as something you can measure." or a person you can control, or appease, or, or even, even understand, right? I am unrepresentable, says God, right? I, whatever model or formula or theory you come up with or you create, I'm bigger than that. Just know, he's bigger than that, right? Whatever you can figure out, God says, I am more mind-blowing than that. However much loving you think I am, I'm more loving than that. I'm more grace than that. I'm more mercy than that. I'm more than that. I've said this a lot of times, and I'll say it again. As soon as you're able to explain everything about God, you're no longer talking about God. As soon as you find, I think I've got him figured out, you're not talking about God anymore. You're talking about an idol of your own creation because he is bigger than that. He's bigger than that. And you know something else? He's better than that. He's better than we think. He's always better than we think. He's better. He's more loving, more generous, more merciful than we could ever imagine. But God is not manageable. You can't shrink him down to something you can categorize, compartmentalize, or easily explain. He can't be shrunken down. When Moses, it was this funny episode where Moses at the burning bush, he's asking God, God's given him the mission, and, and Moses says, okay, well, what do I call you? What's your name? Now, this was very important in Jewish thought. When you name something, you have control over it, right? To name something is to understand its essence and, and to sort of uh, be, in, be kind of in control of it, have, have some charge over it. That's why God allowed Adam to name the animals. And so, so, so Moses is going, well, what's your name? I, I need to give you a name. And God answered, you want a name? All right, I am the I am. And Moses is like, well, that's not helpful at all, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But that's all he got. That's what he got. So he had to go back and go, I'm here from the I am. Um, see, God's like, you're not going to pin me down. I am. I am the I am. I am what I am. God says, don't build a statue and call it me because I'm bigger than that. 
Now, we're going to look at some neat things today. Um, if you have your Bibles, you go over to Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, Moses is still trying to wrap his mind around this. This is a new concept. We have to understand it's such a new concept for them. They believed in gods that, you know, inhabited specific countries and you to a different country. There was a god that lived there, and he didn't go past those borders. And so they just accepted this, that the gods were gods of countries. And, or there was gods of certain things. There was a god of war, and, you know, and there was a god of love and uh, fertility and crops and all this sort of thing. Now, Exodus 33 He's trying to understand this God that is without shape or form. And in verse 18, Moses asks God. See, one time he asked him to show him his, tell him his name. Now he says, he, he, he asked him to show him his glory. To show him his glory, which is kind of our way of saying, I, I need more. I need something I can kind of sink my teeth into here, God. Right? I need something tangible. And that's really human nature. It doesn't make Moses evil or anything like that. It's human nature. We, we need that. It's, it's really why cathedrals exist. Right? Because we need to have something that sort of represents the grandeur of God. Right? It's why crucifixes are on the wall sometimes. It's why that cross is on the wall. Because we, it's good for our eye to sort of like, yeah, that reminds me of God, you know, or something like that. It's why some churches have altars out for, down by the front of their stage. Those altars aren't made of special spiritual wood that was like chopped by angels or anything. It's not magic wood. It's, you know, it was just formed by a guy named Dave and he put them down front of their altars. But, but they represent, they give us something to kind of wrap our mind around, to sort of sink our teeth into. And, uh, and, 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 and so we're creatures who live in a physical world. That's why these things exist. And so we want to wrap our minds around. It's hard to worship something that you can't see and who reveals himself only by his word right? His word. Moses wants to see something. Moses kind of wants some eye candy here. He's like, I want to see you, God. In Exodus 33, verse 19, the Lord says, I will call all my goodness to pass in front of you. And then in verse 22, he says, the Lord says, because he's just messing with Moses by this point, he says, when my glory passes by, not I will pass by, but my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand. Sorry. I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, this is where Hebrew gets really cool. It is like so much cooler than, than we think it is. The, the ancient rabbis had all sorts of interesting things to say about this passage right here. But one thing that really stuck out to them is this part, the, one of the most fascinating things, is this part about God's back. It turns out in the original Hebrew, to see my back is this euphemism for seeing where I just was. To see the place I just was. Right? To see my back. To see where I just was. So it's this figure of speech that literally means to see the evidences or traces of someone after they've already left to see their back. So God here is saying, Moses, okay, you, you can't handle seeing my face. You can't handle it, you're right? Your, your brain would explode, your eyeballs will bleed. It's, it's an ugly scene. You don't want to do this. What I'm going to do is pass by, and the best you can handle is to see the place I just was. Amen. Right? And for, and for Moses, that's going to be mind-blowing enough. To see the, the, the effects, what God leaves behind, right? See, the moment we've got God figured all out, we're no longer talking about God. As soon as we we try to contain him with little nice lines and definitions, we're not dealing with God. We're dealing with something that we made up. 
And if we made them up, see, then we have control. And that's really what idolatry is all about. In passage after passage, we find God reminding people that he is beyond, that he is bigger, that he is more than you think, right? You ever meet people today who are like, you know, I got a bone to pick with God. Some, when I get to heaven and I'm standing there, man, I'm going to ask him some questions, right? You ever have that thought? Uh, <laughs> right. It's hilarious. If you can stand in front of him and not, you know, instantly turn into a little grease spot or you're, you know, just run screaming, if you can stand, I don't think you're going to be pulling out your list of complaints, right? If you, if you read, the, read the book of Revelation, every single scene where it's in, in the throne room of God, my son and I were just talking about this the other day, every single scene in the throne room is, is of people falling on their faces in never-ending worship, right? So we were talking the other day, uh, Jules and I were talking, you know, is, is heaven going to be boring or cool? Because, you know, heaven's going to last a long time. You know, it's, it's kind of forever. And, you know, after a while, we're going to get bored. And I'm thinking, you know what? After, I think I'm going to spend like about a thousand years probably just screaming, ah, right? <laughs> then finally, you know, maybe after a while, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go check everything out. Um, yeah. So, so worship, this is the point I wanted to make. There it is. Worship is the only realistic, legitimate response to the presence of a living God. The only legitimate response when you're in his presence is absolute worship. Hallelujah. Okay, Isaiah 26. You can go over there if you want. There's another way that God speaks about his core nature. It's a, he uses a really helpful word several times in the, in the Bible. We're, we're trying to ask this question. How do, you, how do you deal with a God that has no form, no shape? Uh, you know, and who exists outside of time, even. How do you do that? And you, it's hard to figure him out. In, a, in Isaiah 26, verse 4, the scripture says this, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. The word eternal here is this really beautiful word in the Hebrew. It comes from a Hebrew word, alam. This Hebrew word alam, which means something like to the vanishing point, something concealed, something hidden, off to the vanishing point. It's something, something alam is either something so far in the future or so far in the past that it's like vanished. You can't see it anymore. Maybe you could see it at one point, but now it's over the horizon. That's alam. It's over the edge. So fundamental to, to you know, our understanding of God is that he exists forever into the future. God is forever in the future. He's forever into the past. He's beyond what we can see in the past and in the future. So this, this quality of being concealed means that you can know things about God, that which he has revealed. That's what we can know about God, what he's chosen to reveal to us. But there are truths about God. There are all these things that are concealed from us because God's truth and his nature extends beyond what we can comprehend. See, see the, the, the truth, even the truth that you and I know today about Jesus Christ and grace and mercy was beyond the comprehension of the Israelites, right? And there is God, there is that which we cannot comprehend. His, in his word, he says his ways are above our ways. See, I didn't make that up. He said his thoughts are above our thoughts. They're above us. They're above our ways. For instance, for example, 
we affirm, how many, how many have your Bible with you? Hold your Bible up. Do you love your Bible? I love my Bible too. This, this is my Bible. It's electronic. <laughs> we love our Bible. We affirm that the Bible is truth. We can read it and we can, see, we can see a pattern how to live our lives. We see God's words coming at us and, and speaking to us. The Bible is true. We believe the Bible is true from front to back. We believe it is absolutely true. And what is here in this Bible, we believe is holy and trustworthy. You can, you can trust your life to it. But are there things that are true that are not in the Bible? Sure, that's not a trick question, right? The internet... It's not in the Bible, right? Breakfast tacos, not in the Bible, sadly. Yeah, there's no airplanes, no OCD, right? These things are not specifically talked about in the Bible. Now, here's where Christianity is once again different from so many other religions in the world. You might have noticed that there are religions in the world who idolize, and I use that word on purpose, they idolize their holy book to the extent that they will kill you for mistreating it. You know what I'm talking about? They will kill you. Christians don't do this. You ever notice that? We, we don't kill anybody for mistreating their, their Bible. Because Christians, why? Because Christians, as followers of Christ, who is the living word, Jesus Christ, the living word, we don't confuse the Bible as being the fourth member of the Trinity. Right? It's not Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Bible. Right? It, it, it's not to be worshipped. Right? That book in your lap, we don't worship that, right? And there's a very real reason why. Because we believe that we see the Bible is divinely inspired by God, written by men, but inspired by God, and it contains God's Word, and ultimately, the Bible is given to us to help us better seek the God who is worthy of worship. So we don't worship our Bible. It shows us it helps us to seek the God who is worthy of worship. You understand what I'm getting at? But that book is not God himself. It's not to be worshipped. Or the Bible can become just another idol. It can. To embrace our God, this God that we serve, Jesus Christ, is to embrace a God that extends beyond the vanishing point, beyond the horizon of what we can understand. And that takes what? Faith. It takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? To trust in a God you can't see. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of love. Because see, you've got to love a God to trust a God you can't see with your life. You've got to love him. You've got to love him. And, the, and we have found around here that the more you love him, the better you can trust him. Right? The greater your relationship with God, the more you can trust him. The closer you get to God, the more you can trust him. Right? Because love enables that. Love enables that. So this is, not a, this is a God who's not confined in time. You notice we're stuck in this moment, all of us, from great and small, famous people, poor people. We're all on this timeline, and we are all stuck on this one dot, right? None of us can jump in the TARDIS and go, like, into the future or into the past, as cool as that would be, right? We can't do it. We're stuck here, and we can't get off of it. But God isn't. He is alum. He's alum. He is forever in the past. He is in the future, forever in the future. He exists beyond what is concealed to us right now. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, it says a fascinating thing. Uh, it's actually Moses kind of reminiscing 
about these days. He's, he's, it's years later, and he's reminiscing about God giving the commandments to Israel. And he says this, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. Most scholars believe that's just another name for Mount Sinai. The day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. So God's reminding him that he has no form. He has no form. You didn't see a form. There's no form or shape. Only his word was revealed to Moses, which is a really cool shadow of Jesus, isn't it? Only his word was revealed to Moses. And and then look at what he says next in verse 16. So that you do not become corrupt and make yourselves, what? An idol. Isn't that interesting? How he ties those two things together. This concept of the uncontainable, unformable nature of God directly is tied to, so don't make an idol. Not making idols, right? First, guys, we we read here, God tells Moses, you can't even handle my actual presence because it would be too overwhelming. You you, You can see the place I just was. And then in Isaiah, we, we just read that God exists beyond our sight, beyond the future, beyond the past. And a thousand years later, in, in John chapter 4, Jesus is on the scene, and he's walking around. And he gets into this discussion about space. Um, some of you are like, dude, Scott is watching way too much Doctor Who, um, <laughs> which is not possible, by the way. Um, Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And they're talking about different things, and, and uh, he starts talking about her, telling her about her personal life. So she quickly swings the uh, conversation to a theological debate, um, which never happens, of course. Uh, but, and here's his response. He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Now, why does Jesus say this? If you go back up to verse 19, we kind of get a clue here. The woman has this issue, you see, about God being confined in space. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. So in other words, this is our tradition here in Samaria. We worship God on this mountain because that's the physical spot where God is worshiped. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. That's where the Jews believe God had to be worshiped. And Jesus' response is God is spirit. God is spirit. Jesus is like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You think God just lives on one mountain? Right? No, 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 no. You think God can be confined to a physical space? I, I got to be honest. It's just, this is just me, but it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I always kind of shudder a little bit, you know, kind of have a little twitch when, a, when I hear someone call this building God's house. Because it is God's house in the sense that it's his and he owns everything. And your house is God's house also. That's his. My house is his. But this is a building. The church, the people of God are his household. See? You are what he dwells within. In 1 Timothy 3.15, if you're you're writing it down, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are God's temple and his spirit dwells within you. In fact, nowhere in all of the New Testament that I can find, and I looked really Carefully, I couldn't find anywhere in the New Testament where a building is ever referred to in the New Testament as the house of God. In fact, Acts 7.48 says, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. That, this would qualify, right? So, so you know, that tells me, you know, if, 
something horrible happened tomorrow. A storm came through and knocked this building down. We'd come back next week, worshiped in the field, have a great time. And not for one moment would God have ever been homeless. Right? You wouldn't be like, oh! Right? Because this isn't God's house you are. You're God's house. You are God's house, right? To to misunderstand this is to turn even this sanctuary into... Thank you. So, here's the challenge about God being a spirit. Here's the challenge, is, is that we recognize things by their edges, we recognize things by their, their boundaries. It's, it's how we know one thing is not that. You know, I've got this bottle of water here. It has boundaries. It had edges. You can tell what is the water and what is my thumb, right? They don't sort of mesh together, become like thumb bottle. There's, there's a separate bottle and there's, you know, they, they, have, they have different boundaries, right? Um, and the Bible over and over and over reveals to us this God that has no edges or boundaries, Right? He's like extending beyond the borders of Israel. That's not done, right? But he's like leaking out into the uh, Mediterranean Sea. You know, he's out, he catches Jonah. Remember that, you know? And Jonah's like, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I escaped you. Um, yeah, he's got no limiting measurements because he is spirit, right? Now, a lot of human beings like to say that they're spiritual, but the truth is humans don't like spirit. We don't like spirit right? It, I think it's the reason why if you go anywhere in the world, everybody's creeped out by the idea of ghosts. You can't control it, right? Unless you're a ghostbuster, then you can. But, but spirit, spirit doesn't have any edges or boundaries to it, right? It, it's, it's out there. You can't keep it contained. Uh, we can't get our mind around it. We can control things. I can control this thing. I can make it do what I want. There's an element of control in thingness. But when you move into the world of the spirit, as human beings, you lose control. And as we said, idolatry is all about control. Uh, Spirit has no boundary. To worship a God who is spirit is to surrender my addiction to control. To worship a God who is spirit is to surrender my addiction to understanding everything right? Having all my questions answered satisfactorily. I have to surrender that to worship the one true God who is spirit, whose thoughts are above my thoughts, whose ways are above my ways. It's to admit that God, you are God, and I am so not. It's hard to admit that. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that daily. A God who is alam exists beyond our comprehension. We're getting, we're getting close to the end here, but I, I want to I look at another aspect of God that I think is pretty cool. The, the scriptures say that uh, God made the heavens and the earth, right? We accept that God made the heavens and the earth. However he did that, he made those heavens and the earth. Uh, that means everything was made by him. Everything that exists owes its very existence to him. Now, we live on this earth that is 93 million miles from the sun. That's a long ways. 93 million miles. It's so, um, it's so far that even light, which is almost instantaneous, light takes how long? Yes. <laughs> I think eight minutes or so. It takes like eight, isn't it? Like eight minutes? Yes, it's eight minutes since nobody else knows. <laughs> Don't look it up. Uh, eight minutes to get to us. 
right? I mean, that's crazy. 93 million miles we are away from the, the sun. And it's part of our solar system. There's planets even further out than us that, ex- that comprise this solar system of ours that is just mind-boggling. And then, and then we come to find out that our solar system is just part of a galaxy called the Milky Way. And this galaxy is 100,000 light years across, they say. 100,000. The sun is eight minutes, eight minute light minutes away. The, solar, the galaxy... 100,000 light years across. They say it's filled with billions of solar systems, possibly two, one to two billion other solar systems in the galaxy. Who counts all this stuff? I don't know, people who have a lot of time on their hands. Um, uh, but it's cool to nerds like me. And so, you know, for, for, for hundreds of years, we looked up at the sky and we thought, man, the galaxy is, is an amazing place, you know? This is all there is. The universe, that is the universe. Come to find out the Milky Way is, is of, of these 200 billion stars, is actually part of a universe that is filled with about 100 billion galaxies. And we're not even one of the big ones, right? There's some monsters out there. 100 billion galaxies. And some scientists theorize now, they're saying, well, we might even be the only universe. There might be like this multiverse thing that's going on. And God made it all. God is God of it all. It, it blows me away. And, and it makes me feel really stupid when I think the, back to those times when I, I, I thought I had God all figured out. Right? He made it all. There's a point where you pursue God and you have to stop. And no matter how smart you are or how smart you think you are, you have to stop and say, God is God and I am not. I am so not God. Right? You have to give up this endless addiction to understanding everything. Now, let's take things in another direction. You and I, compared to this enormous, mind-boggling, kind of frightening-sized universe, we're actually pretty tiny, aren't we? You and I are pretty small. But what are you and I made of? Atoms, right? They, find out, they found out you and I are made of these atoms. And for a long time, they thought, these atoms, these are the, this, is all, this is like what everything is made of, these atoms. Uh, and, but then in the year 1911, they found out at the middle of every atom is a nucleus. And there was a big party because they were nerds, right? And they, they, they were excited about this. A nucleus at the, beginning of the, at the center of these atoms. And then, and then they, they thought that was the elemental substance of everything. And they kept getting better microscopes and better technology. And they found out the nucleus is made of protons and neutrons. Whoa, these things are really small, right? And then in the 50s, they found that even protons and neutrons are made of these things called baryons and mesons. And then in the 60s, you guessed it, they found quarks. Quarks, they were there all along. <laughs> quarks, and they had another party. Um, they, keep, they keep finding smaller things. And today, they think there's these things called gravitons, even though they can't see them or prove it. They, they just think they probably need to be there. They're probably there. And then some scientists even theorize beyond below that are probably these little strings that are like these little vibrating things that sing. And, and like everything could be made out of these, right? So these strings form the gravitons and the mesons and the, the gluons and the protons and the atoms that form waffles and cars and you, right? <laughs> Everything. All this stuff is forming all this stuff. There's two, it's like there's two directions of infinity. Two directions of infinity. Apparently, you can go out to the endless, well, it has an end. You, even if you could go to the farthest other end of the universe 
would you be any closer to God? Would you like be knocking on the gates of heaven at that point? No, because he's beyond. He's Olam. He's beyond that horizon. And just as fascinating, you could argue this universe of ours is infinitely small. See, Scripture keeps claiming that, that not only are the stars and the heavens all the work of God, that he's infinitely big, but it also shows us a God that is infinitely intimate. A God that is intimate. This God who is terrifyingly huge is almost heartbreakingly in love with you. He is involved in the most minute details of the cells in your body and the goings-on in your life. That is our God. He's the God of the infinite and the intimate all at the same time. This God says, don't make idols of me. Don't dare. I am greater. I am, I'm bigger than anything you can use to represent me. Now, this brings us to a, a shocking uh, possibility when it comes to idol making. What if there were two directions of idolatry? What if there's two directions of idolatry? In what ways do we make God too small? Do we shrink him down? And Christians are as guilty as this as anybody, right? Uh, sometimes the world, I think, must look at us, you know, as we're having our, like, theological debates and these kind of things that they, they witness, and they must be like, you know, you claim your God is, like, omnipotent and bigger than anything, but you sure argue and bicker like you got them all figured out, right? How, how could a God as majestic as you claim he is be contained to this little box you've put him in? And maybe we need to ask honestly, and I am, I'm talking to myself, maybe we need to ask honestly, what name are we lifting higher? Are we lifting up the name Jesus Christ or John Calvin or Jesus Christ or C.S. Lewis, right? Jesus Christ or Kenneth Hagin, right? Or Francis Chan. What name are we lifting higher? God, I feel like, must see us arguing with each other sometimes and be like, oh, that, that's what I look like, huh? That's cute, right? That's cute. And, and, and look, it's not that we don't, we don't wrestle with, with doctrine and truth and we come to conclusions and we have faith in what he has revealed to us through Jesus, which is the word in the flesh. We know that he's given us life abundantly. We know that he's come to save us from our sins. And we believe this completely because he's not a liar. And we acknowledge at the same time that there's a lot we surely don't understand. There's a lot. God is bigger than our brain. He's bigger than our lists, our formulas. We embrace mystery. That's one of our, one of our ten core values. We embrace mystery, right? Because you, you try to put the Holy Spirit in a box. You try to keep him contained and tell him he can't speak today. You can't do that. We embrace that. And so there's nothing wrong with doctrine. It's important. Doctrine, but doctrine is not the fourth member of the Trinity, right? Do we sometimes make God too small? But there's this other form of idolatry, I wonder, in these two directions. Is it, if it's possible to shrink God down and make him too small, in what ways do we make God too big? And this, see, this is the God who not only holds the worlds together, but he is infinitely involved in your life. He's infinitely involved in giving you significance and joy and in your next right step, he wants to lead you. How do we make God too big? Because an idol is, is any box that we try to stuff God into 
And I would argue an idol is any space that we try to keep him out of. Anything we try to keep him out of. It's idolatry. When we take God, who has said he's interested in supplying our daily bread, your daily bread. He didn't just say, all right, I'll let you be born. I'll see you when you're dead. No. He wants to supply your daily needs, and he cares about you. But we say to that God, I don't believe God's really going to take care of me. You've made an idol. You've turned him into an idol, a, a misrepresentation of him, right? This is the God said he wants to be involved in your life. He wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you guidance. He wants to, to, to protect you from those things that once enslaved you. He's freed you from your Egypt. He wants to guide you. And when we turn to that God and we turn from him and, and we turn to something else to take care of us because we, we think, like, well, that's, that's not a place for God. I don't think God could possibly care about little old me. I, when I do that, I have spat in his face as surely as if I created a golden calf and fell down and worshipped it. I'm spitting in his face when I do that. When I put my trust in something else, when I put my trust in my job, the economy, money, a horoscope, whatever it is, I have either made God too small or I have assumed he is too big and both are idolatry. And it breaks the heart of God because he wants nothing to come between you and him. Nothing to come between you and him. When you try to make God the Lord of Sunday morning, but you keep the rest of the week for yourself, it's idolatry. Or you go the other way. When you try to keep God all to yourself, like your own little personal private assistant in your pocket, and you forget that you were blessed to be a blessing, and you're a disciple that makes disciples, and that's the whole point of being here. When you forget that, that's idolatry. When you substitute the pursuit of religion or ritual or some sort of cosmetic piety or something like that in place of our actual relationship with Jesus Christ himself, that is idolatry. Amen. And, and even when you put head knowledge you put head knowledge of scripture above a heart relationship with the creator himself that is idolatry because all those things are substitutions they feel really good that's that's what's scary about idolatry it's when you're doing it you feel kind of pious you feel like you're being religious but it's idolatry and god hates it i, I invite you just for a uh, a couple of minutes. Think about this and watch this video while you're thinking. Can 
much greater We've tried to keep you in our tents We've tried to keep you in our temples We've worshipped all our idols We want all that to end So we will find you church has been planted here we have one purpose to help lead you into a relationship with jesus christ we don't want anything getting in the way of that anything that's getting in the way of your relationship with the actual lord jesus christ not a religious version of jesus christ or an idol of jesus christ but the actual lord and savior if anything's getting in the way of that we want to tear that down amen Amen. I want, to, I want to share with you one other thing here. One final thought. In the ancient world, the idol was this sculpture, and it was created to, to present to, to the world to kind of give shape and size and depth to the divine. An idol helped people understand what their God was like. So if you had your God of war, then you carved something really, you know, uh, fierce looking, you know, some kind of like dragon or hawk thingy. If you had a God of love, you carved some beautiful woman, and that was your, your goddess of love. God shows Moses that he is different. He is very different. This God is inviting, he says he invites his people to be his priests. He told the Israelites, you will be my priests. He wasn't just talking to the priests, he was talking to the whole nation. You will be my priests. And priests are those who show the world what their God is like. And we'll we'll be his priests, not by making statues, but through living our lives. Through living our lives, we'll be living representations, the living image of God. This God doesn't need his image carved in wood or stone. Because this God has people. This God has people. He's not looking for a statue. Our God is looking for a body. And that is what you are. Today, God is still looking for a body. He wants the world to see what he is really like. And that is why we're the ambassadors of God. We, he, he wants the world to see, not by looking at some gargantuous idol. He wants, some, wants the world to see us, his people, you and me. When the world looks at us, the Bible says, and sees us loving each other, they'll know who God is. They'll understand what God is like. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, in all of your infiniteness and grandeur. We thank you, Lord God, that you care about each and every person in this room. 
You know about each and everything going on, Lord. You know about the things going on in our life that we're not sure about. We don't know what to do next, Lord God. We know that you care about those things and that you have told us that we can trust you. You said that we don't have to care about tomorrow, that we can trust you, Lord God. We thank you, Father God, that you have made us your representatives in this world. Every single one of us image bearers of the divine God. We thank you, Father, for that. Lord, this week, as we go about our week, Lord God, just take the scales from our eyes. Show us all the ways that we might be making idols of you. Show us all the ways we might be misrepresenting you to the world or, or, or mistakenly misrepresenting you to ourselves, Lord God. Show us those ways. We want to know because we want to know more intimately you, the real you, Father God. We want to walk with you, Lord God. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus each and every day of our life until our last breath here and we get to see you face to face, Father God, in your fullness and glory. We thank you for that day. That is our hope. We thank you for that day. Praise you, Father. I thank you, Lord, for every person in this room, for all the things that you have in store for us this week. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Our prayer partners will come down forward. Uh, these guys are here to pray with you, and if there's anything in the world you need someone to to pray in faith with you about. Come down, let them pray with you. It's not the same when we pray. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week and we will see you at a home life or we will see you at Bible study or one of our other small groups going on during the week. Have a wonderful week and we will see you later.